This is the chatter that happens before a podcast, folks. Adrian Elrod, my partner in crime. We've got a special guest, Josh Kroshauer, who is the political editor for National Journal. Journal. He writes the Against the Grain column. He has a, a, a great podcast called Against, Against the Grain, correct? Which uh, Elrod and I actually went on um, early, early this year. We did, we did, and you've been on our podcast before, Josh. We're so happy to have you back. Have you been? Well, this is, I'm glad to return the favor. This is actually my debut. Oh, okay. On the, oh, on crap. The so, okay, sorry. So I think I it's am, just been, we've we've been thinking about you being on our we podcast talk all for a the long time. time. I feel like it's about time that. Uh, in you know, in I, my dreams, you've been in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. Josh Kroshauer, welcome to the Electables. How you doing, buddy? Thanks, guys. B- busy, busy week in politics. Um, so uh, we had a big debate last night, and uh, this, this, uh, this episode, uh, we're recording it on uh, Thursday, November 21st. The debate was last night in Atlanta. What'd you think? What are your takeaways? Big takeaways. Well, look, I, I think we saw two of the second tier candidates who are in that Joe Biden lane, in that pragmatic lane that showed they, they may actually be uh, folks to watch. I, I would point to Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota, who... By the way, she's she's gaining in both Iowa and New Hampshire. She's uh, in fifth place in both those states, if you look at the average of, of, of the polls. And I thought she kind of combined the electability argument with the fact that we can actually fight for center-left policy principles uh, in, in an energetic way. Her line about Pelosi, I thought. Uh, oh, you know, uh, outstanding. Talk, talking about, like, there's never been a woman to be president, and, 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 and she really wants to be the person who's the pathbreaker and pointed to Pelosi as a role model of hers. I, I, Klobuchar raised a lot of money after the last debate, which was also very strong. I have a feeling she's going to get a lot more attention after this debate. Um, look, there, there is – Pete Buttigieg saw early on that Joe Biden was really the only guy running in that center-left space, the, the only viable candidate, I guess you could say. And Buttigieg smartly said, hey, I can be that guy. Too. I can be the generational contrast to Biden and look at the rewards he reaped. He's, he's now leading in, in Iowa and in one poll, uh, at least in New Hampshire, shows him up by a significant margin. Do you think that poll's an outlier? It, look, it, 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 it is, but it also I, – I think Buttigieg – is, I've heard from folks on the ground that Buttigieg is the candidate with the momentum. So mm-hmm. he's not up 10 points. I, I think that's, that's yeah. the outlier. But I think it's fair to say that he's you know in, in the mix for first place and, and that momentum is, is clearly in his corner. Um, but I think, look, Klobuchar and Booker, I, I've always won. We've talked on the show. I've probably said this uh, on our podcast a couple months ago. Booker seems to consistently perform well on the debate stage. Uh, he, uh, he's gone after Biden effectively. Um, uh, you know, Biden is dominating among African-Americans, as, as we've discussed. But I think Booker sees an opening to at least uh, you know, make some inroads. He's someone who's an executive. He's someone who uh, – he, he doesn't talk a lot about, though. This is the one thing – and uh, I think Adrian and I both agree with you on AK and on Booker. Uh, but the thing that I actually am surprised about Booker, what Booker doesn't do enough of is talk about his time reforming and cleaning, cleaning up Newark. No one is actually running in that reformer lane in this race. No one has sort of embraced that reformer mantle in the way in which that I think Booker could. And that would really, I think, round out his identity as a candidate in this race. And I I just think his chief executive experience, he sort of just downplays. But can I play devil's advocate on that point? Of course. I think (laughs) – thank you. I think when you have such limited time on the debate stage, mm-hmm. if you continuously talk about what you've done and not what you'll do, that presents a challenge, right? I mean, 
two hours of debate last night. You could, I mean, Booker did an outstanding job. You know, I think a lot of people are now making donations because they want to make sure that he qualifies for the December debate, which he has yet to qualify for in terms of um, grassroots donations. But he's trying to figure out exactly how to utilize his time to the best of his abilities. I mean, you know, at the very beginning of the debate, and I thought the four debate moderators, all women, yay, were incredible. But it was very obvious that if you were not one of the you know center folks on that debate stage, you kind of had your had to claw your way into some of the answers at yeah. least at the on the first thirty minutes I would say yeah. because most of those questions were focused on the middle five on the debate stage and Cory Booker was did a very effective job of elbowing his way in right but he's going to get less time as long as he's on that outer lane of you know outer podium he's not going to get the time that everybody else does so I don't know if he's can really, you know, you know look, use I th- that time to talk about what he did as newer. No, no, no. I, I, agree, I agree with you. You don't. You always want to be aspirational and forward-looking. But I'm just saying he should be running as a reformer, not necessarily what he, and using as an example what he did in Newark as a as evidence to what he will do in Washington. People don't like Washington. They think it's all corrupt. Everyone is, uh, you know, in the swamp. And he's well positioned to no one's. I just don't think anyone's taken that mantle. Well, you know, the weird thing is that because Booker is trailing, he's kind of been forced to be an attack dog. Even though his campaign is premised happy on warrior, though he does it with a smile. I he think did he does it. And it I thought well. he made a good. Sh- he took took a subtle hit against Elizabeth Warren. I mean, because I think if you ask people in Iowa, New Hampshire, who's the reformer, probably would point to Elizabeth Warren. Even right. though you know, because she, she's the one who wants to shake up the. Cor- you know, she says she's. She, trying to fight corruption. She's trying to take on the entrenched interests in Washington. But I think Booker had a pretty subtle hit that says, he said last night, you basically don't need to attack the, the you know, you don't need to go after business. You can actually work with them. You can actually grow the yeah. economy. You can help people uh, in, in, in his community, you know, in Newark and in other communities that are disadvantaged by by lifting up all tides. And Warren is always looking to attack and and, and demean people in business and, 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 and in the in the executive branch. So, right. um you know, I, I I I thought Booker had a good line of attack on Warren. I thought it was an interesting critique of Biden because he needs to kind of peel into some of Biden's supporters. Mm-hmm. But look, ultimately, if he's not getting above low single digits in Iowa, New Hampshire, um, he's not going to be able to translate any any support later on in the process. Uh, Biden is an interesting candidate, and I agree with you guys that um, he's the Teflon candidate um, because everyone in Washington, we have these conversations. People in the political mm-hmm. class are, are, are sort of like you know stage critics, and and they look at all 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 the moments moments where he wasn't as smooth, wasn't as slick, may have may have faltered in one of his answers. But when you look at the whole package, when you kind of put yourself in the minds of, of someone who's in New Hampshire and Iowa and looking for someone who's electable and looking for someone who can appeal to that Obama coalition, I actually thought he did a decent job. And, and look, when I judge Biden, I'm like, can you, you're the front runner. You're, you're leading nationally. You're leading in, in two of the early four states, both by significant margins. Can you hold your own? Can, can you Essentially, just not collapse and, and not 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 let people take 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 hits on you. You know, he, there were some moments that were a little shaky. Certainly, when Booker went after him uh, o- over the issue of marijuana, I thought he was a little little little. And then they accidentally forgot that Senator Harris was was oh. also an African American woman in the Senate. That was a, not yeah. a good moment. Though I think we look at those moments and put more weight on them than the average voter does. And we, we, we I feel like we played this game before, where he's had a cringeworthy moment. You know, the, the busing moment, for example, against Kamala Harris, and we looked at the polls in South Carolina. We looked at the polls nationally, and he didn't really take a hit among African Americans. He didn't take a hit among the people that you would think would be most bothered by some of his comments. So I, 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 for me, as long as Biden survives, he's still 
having a good night. Yeah. Um, so even though he wasn't the winner on stage points, I thought he came out of that debate unharmed and probably well, still, and I, still the lead candidate. And Josh, I think you raise a really important point. You guys are doing polling and really getting into some of the cross tabs. I'm assuming after these debates to see if certain candidates shift anywhere among you know some of their target demographics. Can you talk a little bit more about? Biden and how his debate performances have have affected him in certain or not affected him in certain target constituencies. You know, he he he's his base is African Americans and older voters, mm-hmm. and, and to some extent blue blue collar working, working class, class voters. He he does. I mean, he, working class whites and blacks. People uh, sometimes that, that, use that term to just and it con- connotes white people. Absolutely. It's working class whites and blacks. I, and I think that's an important point because there's a lot of talk in Democratic circles about like the difference between Biden unites. Both. class together. And that's an important, important uh, criteria. I mean, that's an important skill that he has and he's continued to show throughout the process. Because Biden's really the only one who has built a broader coalition, you know, he's still, he's still weak with younger voters. He's still weak with some college-educated uh, voters. But he's the one who has built the broadest coalition so far. If he does well in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's the heavy favorite to be the nominee. And what is well to you? Does that mean a top two? And does he have to win one of those two states? I think top two or three, um, at least top three. Um, yeah. But, but, I- but it, the thing to me, it's like we were talking about this uh, in a, on our Power Five. The expectations on on Biden, he is he's clearly the national front runner. The expectations for him have been lowered. Over the last couple months, so he—I don't even think he has to win Iowa or New Hampshire. He has to do well, right? He has to do well, but it's just—it's a really good position. I'm just saying it's a good position that his campaign is in right. because mm-hmm. it's like sort of like people are looking past him and looking at uh, these other folks right now. And think about—I mean, in a, in a weird way, the Biden's lowering of expectations, the campaign's is played to his advantage because I absolutely, think he, I think he can absolutely survive even if he unless unless he just bombs, you know, unless he finishes in like fourth or fifth place in Iowa. I think he—he—he's he, still. A pretty pretty credible candidate. But the problem for the other candidates is they all have weaknesses with other parts of the Democratic coalition. So even wins in Iowa and New Hampshire, even really dominant performances there wouldn't necessarily mean it would translate later on in the process. So, you know, take Pete, Pete Buttigieg, for example. Uh, he's polling at 0% among African-Americans in South Carolina. Even if you have the best case sort of optimistic scenario for Mayor Pete that he wins Iowa, wins New Hampshire, I don't think he's winning... South Carolina, and I don't think he's winning Nevada either. And I think and then that, you get into Super Tuesday, and you've got a much more diverse electorate. And here's the stat: here's the stat for Super Tuesday, which is again, I think, good news. What's for the Joe percentage Biden. of delegates um, that are allotted on Super Tuesday? Do you well, know? You, it's like forty percent. Right? Forty percent. Is that, is that yeah, forty okay. percent. But the the number I've been citing in, in my in my column is of the fourteen states that are holding Super Tuesday primaries, six are in the South. Yeah, and, and, and all those six have significant African American right. constituencies. So unless, I mean, look, I'm not going to totally count Buttigieg out as being able to to like win some states, broaden his appeal. But I think he has a much harder time than Joe Biden would. I think Elizabeth Warren would have a much, and Bernie Sanders for that matter, would have a much harder time broadening their appeal, even if they do well in Iowa and New Hampshire. And I just look at 2016, Bernie crushed in New Hampshire, right? Bernie crushed it and, and tied Hillary Clinton essentially in Iowa. And that didn't help him at all in the other states to come or in the, the more diverse states to come. So, Josh, I want to pick your brain on something. So I think we're – the Biden situation is fascinating to me because he stays on top of the polls. He, um, as you mentioned, has built the broadest coalition. He's got, you know, in theory, at least when it comes to the numbers the, in his name ID and his, you know, strong support that he has 
um, you know, across the country. People know him. They love him. They empathize with him. They sympathize with him. Um, he reminds them of the Obama era, all of those factors, right? But how do you square that with the fact that he, at least at the end of Q3, had $8.5 million cash on hand? I still am hung up on the fact that he spent a million dollars, the $15 million raised on private plane travel. <laughs> and how do you – how do you – does he get to a point where he potentially runs out of money, I guess is my question, but he's still on top of the polls. I don't, I have a hard time seeing how he can run out of money. Just get, unless he's, unless, unless these, these, these wasteful expenditures for, you know, that doesn't get fixed. And I think they realized that was an issue. I agree. By the way, he's got a really awesome team. I'm, this is not, I just think that, you know, you, there, there are mistakes that are made and you figure out how to fix them. And I think that was a mistake. Well, look, I mean, and also what we've seen, I mean, look, Biden in the third quarter was slipping. There was a moment in the summer where he was trailing, like losing momentum and he's gotten that back. So I, I think as far as perception goes, yeah, I, I know there are a lot of donors that are worried about, about his, his viability, but I also think that, the, the impeachment hearings, frankly, benefit to, to Biden's advantage. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the fact that Trump clearly viewed Biden as the biggest threat, and we're hearing about this on national television. I, I don't think that's a coincidence that Biden is actually, if you look at the polls, he's gotten a bump in the last few weeks nationally, and, and I think even in some of the some of the early states um, there's while, also the while fr- he's been in the news. And I think there was also last week or two, the Siena poll, which looked at um, uh, some head-to-head matchups in some key battleground states. And it showed that I think every candidate but Biden was was trailing Trump. And uh, the Upshot wrote about it. You had, a, I think, a Leonhard article. But, I mean, you know, the whole sort of – a lot of people were sort of – their hair was on fire about, like, you've got this president who's, like, doing all this corrupt shit. And, um, and Democrats are still trailing. Yeah. And so I think because – Oh, Biden. I think Biden benefits when you've got all this chaos and and nonsense going on with with Trump, and Democrats are just they're just like gotta get rid of this guy, and he is the one who continues to show on a regular basis that he is the most competitive, if not beating Trump in the general election, and that helps him. Yeah, but Biden is the comfort food in, in, of, yeah. of all the leading candidates, and I think that the big risk for for Democrats is. Almost, it's not that the, that Biden is the strongest candidate in recent. I mean, he's not. He's run a pretty, you know, he's the front runner, but he's run a pretty clunky campaign at times. He's been a clunky speaker, but I think there's a lot of risk. That Siena New York Times poll showed there's an awful lot of risk with the other three front runners. I mean, I think Warren and Sanders. It's it's pretty clear now that taking strident ideological positions well to the left of even the Democratic electorate car- can carry significant risks, can can cost uh, Democrats crucial swing votes in a general election, even against President Trump. And I think people are waking – that New York Times poll, I think, was, was sort of a wake-up call to Democrats who think that Trump is so vulnerable that, that anyone could, could beat him. That's not the case. Uh, Buttigieg is an interesting – you know, I, I don't think people have really grappled with the idea of Buttigieg as, as – Pete Buttigieg as the nominee – in on a positive sense, he's a contrast to, to Trump, and that often works in, in a presidential election. In many different ways, he, he actually young, served the served, served our country in the military, and Trump uh, had bone spurs that, or maybe he didn't. Who knows? But um, but no, he's a very he's young. Trump's old. He's, he looks yeah. like he's in really good shape. Trump doesn't. <laughs> but, I, but I think there's also a risk. I mean, when you think about it, he's a. 37-year-old South Bend mayor. South Bend isn't even like one of the top two or three biggest cities in Indiana. It's, it's, it is like putting like Amy Poehler and mm-hmm. you know, Parks and Rec into the presidency. And 
not, and not to take anything away from Buttigieg, who's run a tremendous, tremendous campaign. But I, I mean, I've heard some rumblings in Republican circles, and I think they, they, they would like to face Warren, but I think privately they also think Buttigieg would be a favorable matchup just because the contrast, I mean, there's, there's a contrast there that could also play to their advantage, like an old businessman versus a guy who's just kind of bright-eyed and, and inexperienced. And, 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 and look, Trump plays dirty. And Trump, I don't think we, we know how someone like Buttigieg would respond on the, on the bright lights against someone like the president. Let's talk a little bit about the senator from California, Kamala Harris, who entered this race um, you know, back in the winter of 2019. Uh, but everyone thought she had a fantastic rollout, huge event in Oakland, you know, 20,000 people, uh, packaged that with, um, uh, a visit to, I believe she went to Howard university. She did some things with her, uh, her sorority, um, and had a really just, I think, uh, a rollout that at the time, uh, we all thought, uh, Adrian and I included, uh, was probably one of the best, if not the best, because, she took advantage. It wasn't just a one-day thing. She was able to generate momentum over the course of a week, and um, and she had a. And then the other good moment, which I think, or I should say, the other moment that people thought was very good for her was the was the debate exchange she had with Joe Biden uh, in the summer. But you know, something has happened um, since then, um, and I also think maybe something has happened since the rollout because maybe the the debate exchange was sort of a sugar high for folks and it sort of masked some other issues. But give me your take on her camp, not so much her, well, her campaign and also um, her, her, you know, Kamala Harris as a candidate. What do you think is going on? She was the candidate that looked great on paper. In fact, we had her as the top candidate early on during, during our rankings uh, at, at National Journal. But, you know, to make a, a football analogy, she's sort of like the Cleveland Browns. You look good on paper, but it doesn't translate necessarily to an actual campaign. And look, I think her biggest problem was, number one, not understanding why she was running. Like, the, you know, just having a good resume, just looking good and, and fitting so, a lot of the boxes that Democrats are looking to check doesn't mean you're going to run a good campaign. And she lacked a message. Why do you want to be president? Uh, you know, Joe Biden was sort of the, the, the steady hand. Uh, Elizabeth Warren is, is the one who wants to shake things up. Pete Buttigieg is the generational change that, that people are looking for. Kamala Harris was someone who checks a lot of boxes and wants to be president but didn't really have a good, good, good case to make, at least in my judgment. The other problem, I think, is a strategic one, a tactical one. And she – there was a moment in time where – Everyone, including Pete Buttigieg, were, was running to the left, was running to the Sanders wing of the party. Everyone thought that was the way to win. You have to go to the, the kind of far left and, and excite the base. And Biden was the only guy in the middle really running, I mean, you know, Klobuchar and a few others too. But Biden was really the only leading candidate to really, really appeal to the, the moderates that make up half the Democratic Party. Harris had the resume. She had she had the background. She had the charisma. She had a lot of things going for her. There was a moment, especially on the healthcare debate, the Medicare for all debate. She could have been the candidate that said, "Hold on a second. You know, maybe I, I signed on to the Medicare for all bill, but I, I realize that you know I, I want to be the the, the, the person." promoting choice. I don't want to take private health insurance away from uh, everyone and have a much more centrist plan. Um, instead, she kind of 
pulled an Elizabeth Warren. She kind of said, well, I, I still support Medicare for all, but only in 10 years. And it was muddled and she didn't seem to have a good grasp on the policy. And it wasn't just that. On health care and, and a lot of other issues that are at center of mind to a lot of voters, she took the leftward position. So while Buttigieg recalibrated uh, during the summer and said, oh, wait, there are a lot of moderate, pragmatic voters who want an electable challenger to President Trump, he took that lane and he looked look at the dividends where that, that, that's gotten him. Harris could have done that too. And she just strategically, her campaign strategically made a mistake. You know, I think there are people in her inner circle that, uh, you know, may have had their own personal viewpoints, uh, but weren't thinking at it, weren't looking at things from a pragmatic political perspective, and they missed a huge opportunity. There was an opportunity in the, in, in the spring and the summer to put her in the Biden lane and to make her look like the electable candidate. She ended up choosing the Warren lane and didn't get her anywhere. I thought she had a really good debate, one of her stronger debates. Um, she had, a, I thought, a really effective exchange with Tulsi Gabbard. But again, I'm I'm one of those people that I'm just not really quite sure why people are having exchanges with Tulsi Gabbard. Like it's not, it's like you're punching down in many ways. No, and that is not a, a, a knock on Tulsi as a person. It's just in terms of where she is as a candidate for this contest. Um, she had, but I thought she had. Um, I thought she had a very good um, message against Trump and the um, and the corruption we're seeing from the president and how Democrats can can go after that. But look, I think ultimately for her, I mean, the big the big concern I would have right now is, does she have the money to stay in this race? I mean. Uh, she's made she's made some strategic decisions, right? I mean, and- the question is she bringing in the money that that she has in the past? But I, I, I we'll see in the fourth quarter numbers. I, I assume it's dried up quite a bit, um, and then that that's what's worrying a lot of people in her orbit. There've been stories in the local California press suggesting that she drops out before Iowa because you, you might, California you can vote as early as the Iowa caucus. You know, you have early voting in California, so I think there's a real fear that you know because she's not really turning anything around, she could finish way back of the pack. In in her home state, and it would hurt California's own political interests if she, the home state favorite, ended up kind of diminishing her own state's primary. That that aside, um, yeah, she has had good moments. She's done pretty well at. She did well at the this week's debate. She had a good performance in Iowa. I think probably the best performance at, at the old what, what JJ the, dinner, the, JJ, the old JJ dinner. Um, but. The problem, I mean, if I had to look at it from a very granular level, she's good at delivering the lines. But when you, when you're, when, you know, in, in football, you have to call audibles. So sometimes you need to, you need to make a, a, a change in the play, and you need to make it yourself and not rely on your consultants, not rely on your team. And off the cuff, when she's asked questions that are difficult, um, when she's done some of these town halls, when she's had a debate moment where maybe you don't expect the line that's coming, she's struggled. And, and I think people have noticed that. And when you combine that with the lack of, you know, argument for why she's running in the first place, I, you know, I just think there's not a whole lot of time to turn it around. And like you said, Doug, she's running out of money. She's not, you know, unless she turns around, turns it around quickly, it's hard to get the resources you need to run statewide. Yeah. Well, look, I, I think we don't close. The, I, I certainly wouldn't close the book on Kamala. I think people saying that she's going to quit before Iowa. I think that's crazy. She should stay in as long as she can. And look, crazier things have happened in, in races where, you know, we saw John McCain, you know, came out of nowhere. And in, in 2008, uh, after he was sort of written off, he came back, John Kerry came back. Now, 
So it's it's possible. Well, just really quickly, she's the candidate on paper that still could be the Obama put put the Obama coalition. To, Biden right now looks like the only one that, that theoretically can do that. If she showed some signs of strength, she would be the like person Absolutely. everyone would be looking at. Unfortunately, things are kind of moving in the other direction. Yep. Let me get your thoughts on a couple. We had uh, one new entrant into the race, uh, Massachusetts, former Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick. What are your thoughts on uh, Governor Patrick and his what I mean? What are his chances here? Unfortunately for Governor Patrick, I think his chances are, are awfully low, and it's not because he's not a he wasn't a good public he wasn't a good governor of Massachusetts. He's got close ties to President Obama. That's a huge asset. But boy, it's just hard for anyone to get into the presidential campaign this late. Not not qualify for the debates because I don't think he didn't qualify last night. Obviously, and I don't think he'll qualify for the next debate. And just go from zero to 60 with, with the first caucuses less than three months away. Um, there was a, a sort of a, I guess, a viral tweet that went around last night. He was doing a campaign appearance, I believe. I believe it was in Georgia, um, outside the debate. And only two people showed up, and there was a picture of an empty room. Now, I don't think that, that indicates Patrick's lack of potential appeal. I think, look, he needs to hire enough talented staff, field staff, to, to make sure that everything's running on all cylinders. And it's, it's just hard to do this late in the game. I also think we've talked about Booker. If you're voting for – if you if you don't like Senator Booker, who is also an executive, who, who also is sort of in, in that – he's African-American, has that same center-left mold ideologically, like – I don't know where what Patrick gets you that Booker doesn't. If you're in if you're in that that political space, so you know I I, I think Patrick if he got in a year ago and I know his wife had serious health issues, so that that was a big reason why he didn't get in originally. But I, I just think his odds are very long. His his premise is he's known in he's known in New England, make a play in New Hampshire, and then do well, and then translate that into South Carolina, which isn't a crazy premise. I mean. You know, that's why when you – if you're comparing him to some of the other candidates, whether it's Booker or whoever it is, that is the – that is the – that's their theory of the case, I believe, which is he was uh, – you know, he uh, – New Hampshire uh, part – there's a big media market, Boston, that goes into New Hampshire that uh, – so there's a um, – you know, there's an expectation that he's known in New Hampshire, so maybe he doesn't have to raise so much money there. His name ID might be strong there. I I haven't checked any recent New Hampshire polling on this. And then he does better than expected in New Hampshire. He doesn't win New Hampshire, but maybe finishes in the top three, four, slingshots him. You know, skips over. Well, he wouldn't skip over. Uh, he would skip over Nevada. Maybe he would skip over Nevada and then go to. Yeah. And then go to South Carolina and uh, maybe finish in a top two position. Surprise yeah, I mean, that, that is sort of the bank shot there. I mean, and Bloomberg. Yeah, I mean, look, Bloomberg, a lot of things have to happen. Bloomberg, but. if he, he runs, is sort of doing a similar bank shot. He's skipping the entire. You know, if he runs, he would skip the entire first. Four yeah, give days. me your thoughts on Bloomberg. Also, very, very skeptical that he'll be able to make any inroads. And largely it's because – so he's not doing anything in the early four states. His his strategy, which also makes some sense on paper, is to use his money, leverage his money in the big state Super Tuesday contests. The, pr- the problem is money doesn't always translate into votes and you can spend all the money in the world. You're not going to get people to support you. His favorables are, are, are pretty low within the Democratic Party. And he has issues with African-American voters because of uh, Stop and Frisk, which he championed in, in New York City. He just apologized uh, at, at, a, at a South 
Carolina church for for his 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 role in that. But that, that that's been a part of his brand uh, and how people view him for a long time. And you know, again, with six of the fourteen states on Super Tuesday in the South, I mean, Alabama and Arkansas are not you know, and Texas and Virginia, those are not going to be big Bloomberg states. So I don't know where he where he's going to spend that money. Like where 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 does he feel? Which state? California is not exactly a. a, a you know the Democratic Party in California isn't exactly pawning for like a centrist businessman as the uh, as the standard bearer. So I am very. I mean, I think Patrick in th- actually has a better theory of the case in a way because th- he does have a base in New Hampshire he can use and, and use that as sort of a bank shot to get him into the race. I think both are long shots, but Bloomberg, I just don't see how he how he how, how he how he does anything. You know what I think has been interesting in this race is sort of the resurgence among the candidates of Barack Obama. You know, he started out. Um, we started out this campaign and no one ever talked about Barack Obama, except Joe Biden. Um, Joe Biden has sort of hooked his campaign onto the uh, uh, Obama legacy. But everyone else sort of either ignored Obama or uh, criticized uh, his, uh, a, a number of his achievements or maybe some of the things he didn't accomplish. And then there was that turn that happened maybe a month or two ago and now, you know, everyone sort of, even Tulsi Gabbard, who's been like, uh, you know, who's been very critical of the Democratic establishment in the debate last night, she mentioned, uh, she had, she went after the Bush-Clinton-Trump uh, foreign policy, not Obama. But I found that interesting. I have ne- I never understood uh, why, Ob- why Democrats, uh, most of the Democrats campaigning weren't embracing Barack Obama and touting his accomplishments and touting all the things that he, he did. Yeah. What did you read on that? I mean, it, it, it's delusional, and it, I think it stems from people spending more time on Twitter than actually looking at polls and actually talking to voters. Because, you know, the Democratic Party, no matter where you stand ideologically, Obama is a beloved figure, and uh, it's like a ninety-five, ninety-six percent favorable rating. Yeah, I mean, the notion that that you're going to criticize Obama for not being aggressive enough on health care or because of his immigration. I mean, Julian Castro was trying to hit him on immigration, even though he or he served in the uh, in the administration. It just doesn't pass the smell test. And I think after that debate where it seemed like no one other than Biden was willing to defend the former president, it was – people realized they were making a big, big mistake. Tactical error. And it goes back to like, look, I think Democrats realized they thought the activist left in the party was much more powerful than it actually is. And that, that that's where you see pockets of resistance or you know criticism of the, pre, of the former president. Uh, but that doesn't reflect the larger party at all. Um, Biden – has been leaning on Obama so much. Right. Um, I mean, that's actually sort of the secret to his candidacy. He's been able to kind of run on the Obama legacy. I think he also needs to talk about the future and talk about, you know, what, what he can do to expand and improve up upon Obama's legacy. I think even the former president would tell him that. But uh, it is striking that, that, that so many Democrats were willing to run uh, against Obama, or at least a lot of the policies that he stood for in his administration. Yeah, I always, I just, I, I was always scratching my head when, you know, there, when it was, when no one embraced or defended all of the things that Obama did. And it's interesting, last night I was watching, you know, I was watching the debate and, you know, Bernie Sanders talked about how, you know, we got to, you know, um, essentially attacking Democrats um, for not standing up against the insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies. And I'm like, well, you know what? I remember 2009 and 2010 when I was in the House working for House Democrats and Senate Democrats and the White House at the time 
we're taking on these industries to change the healthcare system. And Josh, you remember this very well. We lost a lot of seats in 2010 for taking that um, taking that step. And people, I think, forget, first of all, how hard it was to pass the ACA, how difficult it was. And at one point, it was dead and buried when, um, when, uh, when Senator Kennedy passed away, or almost dead and buried. So I just think, like, I feel like when I hear those attacks, I like Bernie Sanders, I like his campaign, but sometimes I'm like, dude, what what are you talking about? Where were you in two thousand nine when we were do, when we were passing the ACA and we were getting attacked left and right from these special interest groups? Yeah, pr- President Obama <laughs> knows better than anyone about the how hard it importance was importance of politics. Right, you, you can you can claim to support the most progressive agenda in the world, but it doesn't matter at all if you can't if you don't have the votes to get it passed. And look, I think the. I think Democrats would acknowledge, if you actually look at the Obama record, that he was a pretty progressive president, but he understood the limitations of not trying to, you know, campaign on the most leftward parts of, 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 of the policies that he changed. I mean, it's it's good to market yourself to the broadest possible coalition in both a primary and a general election. And Obama understood that from the get-go. Um, you know, he spent his political capital on, 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 on health care and got a one of the most significant pieces of legislation passed uh, and spent his political capital on it. I mean, the, the notion that like the public option was was politically untenable in 2009, 2010. The notion that single-payer government-run health insurance is going to have a majority constituency and, and that there's no consequence, whether it's politically or legislatively, for trying to push something like that, you know, Obama probably looks at that and rolls his eyes because, look, once you get, once, you, once you're in office, once you have control of the presidency and he had control of the House and, and almost had a filibuster-proof majority in the Senate, that's when you get things done. That's when you can actually, you know, get a lot of progressive uh, priorities championed. You, you, when, when you're trying to Kind of put everything up front in the campaign and saying you're going to be as progressive as possible. That's actually only hurting yourself in terms of trying to build the governing coalition that Obama was so successful in doing. So Obama understood politics. I think I have a feel. I just I just look at some of the candidates, especially on the progressive side of the party, and it feels like they just don't have a good. Uh, instinct about how to win elections in a general election, how to build a broad constituency for your support. Well, I would, if I, if I were, I would respond to that. Uh, and I think the way progressives would respond to that is that typically in big policy negotiations over the years, Democrats have started the argument in the middle and the Republicans have started it so far to the right. And so when there's a when they when the negotiation concludes and they meet in the middle, the inevitably the final product is center right or farther to the right. And I think what progressives are trying to do, which I think tactically makes sense, uh, I don't, uh, you know, again, I think there are I, I don't necessarily agree with all the policies, but is to st- is to start the negotiation farther to the left, farther to the progressive side, so that. That's not where it's going to end, but that's the starting point for them. And then maybe the final product is something that is more center left. So now that's, I think, you know, people would say they would point to Bernie and the Medicare for all as one reason why Obamacare now is so popular because, and why the public option is actually a potential uh, compromise. So I've heard that argument from, yeah. from many, many, okay. many folks in the press, and I've, and I've had conversations about that. Where I fundamentally disagree is I don't disagree with the part about trying to maximize your 
posturing for a negotiation. But you do that after you're elected, not during the not in the run up to a general election campaign, right? You you in a campaign you want to appeal to the broadest array of people possible, not show your hand perhaps as much, leave leave your options open. And when you get when Obama got elected and he found he had the House overwhelmingly Democratic and, and the Senate 60, 59, 60 seats during his first year, he knew he could. You know, play, he, he, he did actually call for a more ambitious health care proposal than what was actually passed through the Congress. He did actually utilize sort of the progressive principles in, in calling, you know, in, in kind of trying to maximize his position and ultimately having to make some concessions along the way. But you don't do that in a campaign. Now, you, you don't, certainly don't do that when you're getting close to a general election where polls show that position is, is going to lose your votes and you may not even get to the presidency. Sure. From a, I, I, from a negotiation standpoint, I, I, I think you're right about that. But I do think that when you're running for a primary nominate when you're running to be the primary um, you know to run, to run and win a primary you're actually not necessarily trying to appeal to the broadest set of voters in a primary what you're trying to appeal to is the most amount of especially in a field this big the largest percentage of voters that are going to help you win the nomination and then the thinking is on both sides is that you broaden out and maybe you move a little bit to the center on certain issues and so that in a general election, but in order to get to the general, you got to get the nomination on both sides of the aisle. And I think that Democrats, but I do agree, I think that it was a miscalculation by a number of these candidates to try to run um, uh, so far on the left lane, not because of the ideas aren't right. I agree with a lot of the ideas on the left. It's just that the lane was so full. Well, and right? I think that that's part of it, but I would also argue that even though you're trying to appeal the primary voters, number one, you don't want to box yourself in. You don't want to kind of embrace a specific piece of legislation that'll and double down on that to, to box you in for a general election. And I think Warren did that, and she's gotten in trouble now because she's you know re, re, reversed herself in some, to some extent, where she's saying, "Well, I actually agree with initially kind of just trying to expand people, get people access to to Medicare, and then a, a couple years into my administration, we'll have a bill that basically you know does the rest of the of, of, of the outcome and." and gets rid of private health care insurance. I don't think that's any better politically, and I think that puts her in an even more difficult spot. But, but I, you know, you're right, Doug, that, you know, it, it also is about picking your fights wisely. And even Democrats, if you look at the polling on Medicare for All, that divides the Democratic Party. I mean, mm -hmm. there is, I mean, usually, even in a primary, you want to build, you know, you want to find the position that has the most support. And, even, and I think what they learned as the campaign went on is that even Medicare for All, while it sounds good and may be popular at first, when people learn about the details, even within the Democratic Party, it's a very polarizing issue. So I know we got to go. Just two questions. One, Democrats keep the House? I, I think that's a pretty safe bet. Um, Probably lose seats, I, I would say, just because you have a lot of exposure in the, you know, the Trump districts, the very red districts, like Joe Cunningham, uh, who's a very good member, but you know, in a tough Trump district in South Carolina, you know, there are a few other low-hanging pieces of you know, members that are in very, very conservative districts. But I think ultimately the House is pretty safe. Impeachment. I mean, the Republicans are hoping that there's a backlash to impeachment, but boy, I mean, after watching the hearings this week, I, you know, at best, I think they they, they played to a draw politically. I don't think I don't think Republicans are really going to be able to score many points on, on that issue in the suburbs, especially Senate. What do you think about the Senate? Any chance Democrats can win the majority? I, I'm, I wrote a column about this. It got got a lot of uh, attention, but I, you know, I think people are kind of sleeping on the Senate, and I have a feeling the Senate is going to be what people are paying attention to uh, as we get closer to to the 2020 election. Um, do the math for us right now. How many seats do Democrats have to win? 
to win the majority. If they win the pres, if they win the presidency, they have to win what three? And if they win the presidency, they need to win three. Though I would put an asterisk on that because I, I think Alabama is going to go back to the Republicans. I know Doug Jones uh, has a very is going to run a very very effective campaign, but that's a very red state. So I think I think you, the magic number is four, regardless of anything that that happens with the presidency. Um, you know, look the the race to watch is Maine. I mean, that's the, that's the most Democratic state, I believe, uh, that, that Republicans are defending. Susan Collins is also one of the most battle-tested members, but she's gotten sucked into this partisan uh, game of Washington these days, and, and, and her vote on impeachment is going to be very closely watched. Uh, both Republicans and Democrats think that, if you look at Maine, that wh- wherever Susan Collins goes, wh- whatever the, the nature of that race is, that's going to be the bellwether wh- when all is said and done. Um, you know, I think, you know, Colorado – with Senator Gardner, Arizona with Senator McSally, um, and even North Carolina with Senator Tillis. I mean, those are to me, those are no, they're no better than toss-up races for for Republicans. That's that's three states right there. Um, Tillis is facing a two-front war. He's got a primary challenger on his right. He, you know, the big question is how good is, who's going to be his Democratic opponent, and are they going to run a good campaign? But you know, it's a tough state, uh, swing state. And uh, Colorado is a Democrat. I mean, that, that state is like Virginia, right? I mean, it's it's becoming bluer and bluer by the day. I like Cory Gardner. I think he's an effective uh, senator in many ways, but I don't know how he's going to win over uh, Clinton voters, Democratic voters that, that make up the majority of voters. You got a guy who's won statewide already running against him. If he wins the nomination, it's competitive. Nom- I mean, I think it's the, you right. Pick him up. I think he's the favorite. Um, and, and, and in Arizona, you got McSally, who lost, you know, lost right. the state that Trump won last time. And then still ended up in the Senate. Yeah, run, well, yeah, we got appointed, running, you know, sort of a, a, a not, I don't think she's running the greatest campaign so far. And the guy she's running against, Gabby Gibbard's husband, uh, Mark, Mark Kelly. Kelly, is raising gobs of money. He's got more cash on hand than her. So that that's a race to watch. Um, any surprises there? Do you think um, Joni Ernst is at all in trouble? Do you think uh, Mitch McConnell uh, is is in any trouble? I don't think Mitch McConnell is in trouble. Uh, Even though we won the uh, governor's race there? Yeah, governor's races don't – I mean I, 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 I almost feel like this has to be like – written in every one of my columns, but <laughs> governor's races and congressional races are totally operating on... It's a, Governor's races, I will say, are the last refuge of partisanship. I mean, people actually will vote for the candidate, not vote for the, the party. So, But I, I don't. Th- I, I think McConnell's pretty safe, even though he does have issues back home. Uh, or, I, I would put Jody Ernst on, on that, in that big, big race to watch list. Trump's job approval in Iowa has dropped more in that state than in almost any other state. And it's because of the you know, tariffs. tariffs and because yeah. of his overall character issues. Right. Josh Kroshauer, political editor at National Journal, longtime friend. Um, Twitter handle? Hotline Josh. Uh, and uh, you can also get my columns at nationaljournal.com against the grade. Awesome. Well, thank you for joining us on The Electables. Thanks, Doug. Great to be here. From my partner in crime, Adrian Elrod, this is Doug Thornell, and we'll catch you next time.